Hello, and welcome to another episode of Factor 2. Um, you probably notice a slightly different ambience today. That's because I'm recording outside. I'm in a field on the farm that I grew up on. From most of the fields on the farm, you can look out across the valley at this limestone escarpment. And that was my view for my whole childhood. Out the kitchen window, you could see it. I started climbing when I was 13 or 14. But I've done remarkably little climbing on this escarpment over the years. Really just the odd route and a few of the classics. And there were lots of reasons for that. It's on top of the hill. It's north-facing. It's pretty dirty. There's loose rock. The pegs are pretty old. It's hard to find belays at the top. Yeah, it's not a very appealing place in some ways, even though the handful of routes are brilliant. And it's quite weird to come back 20 years on at this point and look at it with fresh eyes and just think, actually, if you went up there today you were doing the first ascents, you'd bolt it, and it would be an amazing mid-grade sport crag. There'd be a few harder lines, but it would be really popular. There are people here who see it as a kind of bastion of adventure climbing in the area. I'm not going to tell you what this crag is, actually, but if you read my blog or follow me on social media, you can probably piece together the clues. The main thing, I think, is just looking across the valley and kind of a wasted resource because I know this thing is really valued by a small group of people but it would have been an amazingly popular crag as a sport crag and that's really what today's story is about you're listening to Factor 2 from UK Climbing my guest today is Pete Oxley Pete was responsible for hundreds of new routes in Dorset, as well as retro-bolting existing lines. But he also put up new routes in Avon and Cheddar, in South Wales in the Peak District, and in New Zealand and Australia, where he now lives. In this episode, though, I was mostly concerned with Portland, because it represents this kind of birth of a new style. And it's not the only place that that's happening by any means. But in the case of Portland, I thought it's interesting just how headstrong Pete needs to be because he's not just putting bolts in to get some new routes done. He's part of a scene which is creating a whole new wave of climbing in the UK. One that we take for granted today. Again, if you're listening to last night's program, or if you heard uh, Mike Reed earlier on, you'll know that this is an all-singles program. And I might as well tell you now that it doesn't involve as many famous names as the programs sometimes do, but I hope that you'll uh, listen to it all anyway for this particular reason. I'm endlessly prattling on about the vast number of independent singles being released, and these are records of some merit which are not getting as much exposure as they deserve usually. And so tonight... We're just Again, being probably a bit isolated with school and stuff, it wasn't, didn't have a lot of friends, I suppose, in... Yeah, not that it was, you know, I love people knew me and stuff, but don't. there was never any great interaction. So I, I really, um, like a lot of people, probably got into music as a way of you know, identifying yourself. And um, uh, what was it? it was like a choice between punk and disco. So punk was kind of it in the late 70s, early 80s. It was post-punk, and that was really where I got a lot of interest from, a lot of satisfaction, because a lot of the people involved in it, and I'm talking about indie music here, independent thinking bands. And I thought it's still the same today. I, I would seek out people who are really inventive, very creative, expressing their own way of doing things. And I was just, uh, I found it a mirror to climbing, really. But, you know, bands like Joy Division and so on, back at the start of things, they really related to it because they're kind of outside of the normal sphere of music, weren't they? And I felt the same way with climbing, and it resonated a lot. And I just love their music, and because um, I found it deeply motivating, I still find it like that now. If I'm having a down day or something, which is pretty rare, but um, I'm having a bit of a, you know, I can't be bothered going out in the drizzle to do a bit of climbing. You just got to put on something you like, you know, put a bit of ride on or something, and you're out the door before you know it, you know put a bit of um, Smashing Pumpkins on, Everlasting Gaze, stick that on YouTube, you're going to be through the door and leave a hole in the door, the shape you want to be to get to the crag as quickly as possible. And I always found that 
like on yeah, people who used to climb with like the Cook Brothers and that they'll, they'll remember that. <laughs> you know, going out in my purple Capri to Portland was usually uh, an oral experience of um, yeah, ear busting dimensions. Uh, you know, listening to Helmet or something crazy going down there and just being pumped up. By the time you got there, you know, you're adrenalised to the max and can't wait to get going. And it's always been like that, really. At the end of October, and if you watch the TV programme Something Else, you'll have seen them do the song. It's called Transmission. And when I started climbing when I was 14, properly, and I was super, super interested in what was happening up north and in the, you know, the history of climbing at that point. And I always have been anyway. But at 14, um, in Dorset, <laughs> in 1980, uh, there was nothing happening. And, you know, it was just really hard to even go climbing because I don't think people get it now. You don't go to a climbing wall. There are no climbing walls. There was no training. There's no bolts. There's nothing. There's just... Um, this history of some really interesting characters who put up some traditional climbing. And Swanage was was a, a place which, if you haven't climbed at Swanage, is one of the most fearsome places to go climbing in the UK. If you go climbing at Swanage and you can be successful at it, you're, you're definitely cutting the mustard because super intimidating cliffs, sea cliffs, uh, difficult to get into, loose top outs. The, the rock is often rotten in many places. And you've got to be driven even just to want to go down there anyway. But at uh, 14, there was nothing much happening. I was just super into the idea of being a climber at that point. Um, I mean, my own personal history was in just a, a real passion for the outdoors. I used to go on holidays with my mum and dad, Cornwall and stuff. And I'd say with anybody who's kind of done something in a sport, I think it's almost predetermined that that was going to happen to you. Um, there are certain key things in life that happened to me. I mean, I grew up in North London, um, Potters Bar, which if you've ever been up that way, is just a grey nothingness on a junction on the M25. You know, it's an absolute nightmare. Um, but my parents were really old, actually, um, and they retired and made the brilliant decision of moving to Dorset. Then I was, I was kind of searching for sports that would fulfill me personally in a sort of a, a personal challenge if you like and I, I went through a period where I was into orienteering I used to compete in orienteering when I was um, around 10 did pretty well actually um, then got into cycling my brother's a dead king cyclist and it all kind of spiraled down to I'm searching for this um, sport that would kind of fulfill a kind of inner you know passion for something that would fulfill me internally rather than a team sport I love football and that stuff but don't get me wrong uh, being able to push yourself personally was always at the core of anything I wanted to do you know I'm really obsessed with, with climbing to such an extent I, you know, I sort of I have to climb just more or less every day if I don't climb you know, I uh, yeah, I feel as though I haven't done anything that day. The danger. And then around 1979, uh, like a lot of climbers uh, around the UK, we suddenly saw Rock Athlete came on the TV. If you haven't seen it, you know, it's like Ron Fawcett, Pete Lucey, taking taking a very personal, trained approach to climbing, and it just uh, it just clicked with me that that was what I wanted to do more than anything in the world. I just remember seeing the footage of him soloing at the start of Rock Athlete, um, even to this day, is, is deeply moving, and it still is, you know, just to watch him moving fluidly as an athlete over natural ground with the wind blowing through his hair. I don't think there's anything you can actually surpass in life, because climbing is one of those sports that I quickly realised that a lot of sports are not very interesting. You go cycling, time trialling, it's dead boring. You know, you're just kind of facing the pain of can you make it through 25 miles at a certain speed but quite climbing is like a combination of dance and mental approaches it's got that fear factor rolls it all into one and I'll, you know, it just clicked with me straight away then come on 
You're still babies. And having moved down to Dorset and uh, my dad when I was like 10, it wasn't long before I was thinking of, you know, like becoming a mountaineer. Like uh, I remember I went to see Chris Bonington in Southampton, I think about 1978. I got his, got his autograph in his book. Uh, I thought he was the greatest thing since sliced bread. But then 1979, <laughs> pretty much that was changed instantly into wanting to be like, rock, like a rock athlete. Uh, at age 14, and I, I never really thought any differently from that point on, even to now, and I'm 55, and I still think the same way. It's just um, all I want to do in the morning, if you, <laughs> you gave me half a chance if you, to get out climbing, really, and push myself as hard as possible. Hello again, lovelies. For me, a weekend of small embarrassments and frustrations, which hopefully will be swept aside by a week of dynamic programmes, a positive riot of rhythm and melody. Tonight, yeah, I think it's like a rebellion thing. Country. We start with dance society. So I find it really, really tightly worked in with climbing. So I remember like I'd have an off day, a uh, rest day, and I, I would have a list drawn up back, back in the early 90s and go up to Revolver Records in Bristol. And I, it was just as good as going climbing to go in there and get the latest from you know some record label in the states that you love or get a latest ride thing or something cool that you've just been noting one of the things that kind of definitely forged my own personal um inner drive if you like when we moved down to london i did not enjoy school at all from the age of 11 to when i left at 18 yeah, it was a very lonely, um, very lonely place, and there's no one into the outdoors at all. Uh, I pursued everything I wanted to do from completely inside myself. And at age 14, I remember one of the other, the other forging points in, for me was I couldn't actually join properly the local climbing club because they had insurance um, kind of clause where you couldn't really go climbing until you were 16 as a official member of the club gobsmacking to say that now but again i, I count that as a really fortunate occurrence because what happened then was that um i just went into what again it's this creativity of being somewhere where there's nothing and there's no one influencing you there's no one to tell you how to act or operate which i really love but it's just kind of <laughs> But, you know, I, I actually ended up uh, thinking, what can I do? And what did Ron do? He went traversing on barn walls and just went climbing eight hours a day on anything he could find, you know, and people like Jerry and so on were doing the same thing. So I went out and chipped up some bridges. Uh, there was a bridge down near Poole in Dorset, which was near me. And I remember one summer, it was the summer when I was about 14, just went down there two or three hours a day, every day of the holiday. And I know looking back on it, I was doing 5C to 6A problems on the walls there. Uh, I could stay on the 5C traverse for 30 minutes by the end of the summer. It's actually quite a similar story to some, you know, a bit like Jerry and that, who were just traversing on school walls. And it's a really similar sort of story, I guess, just trying to find a way through because there's nothing to train on. Before I was 16, I, I actually put in, which is quite prophetic, and I won't tell you where this bridge is, but if you're interested, you can always find out from me. There's another bridge down there, a place called Wimborne, which I completely opened up as a training zone for myself. And I created a route which was about E56B at 15, and I remember I made a homemade peg with an eyelet in it, and my dad helped me out with it, and I banged that in, and there was one guy at school who was into the into the cadets. And um, by this point, I had bought a rope and I had some proper, you know, boots and a chalk bag, of course. And I led this route on this one peg, or should we say a smashed in bolt, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and that actually was my first ever lead before I ever went outside. So you can see, for me personally, it's all just um, it's all stuff I was making up in my own mind to get into climbing because it didn't exist in those days. I mean, it, uh, in 1980, the highest grade in Dorset was about E3 uh, on trad, you know, big, gnarly, overhanging cracks with rubble, um, which is brilliant, by the way. Don't get me wrong, it's awesome. 
And yeah, it's like as soon as I left school, um, all I wanted to do was go go climbing, really. So that's kind of where it started from. But it's all an inner passion, it always was. Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't have been able to do it without, because um, I'd made the decision to be a, a good or bad a full-time climber at age 18. And I was actually set to go to Sheffield Uni to do um, geology, funny enough. But um, I was so taken by what was potentially in front of me in, in Dorset and around and Avon and stuff. I mean, it's just got shadow. It's all I could see that the massive amount of potential. I didn't see any point in going to Sheffield and becoming another another dude on the scene up there. I wouldn't have been. It wouldn't have been my thing anyway. Which is a bit odd because you, you probably can't get a grip, grip of the, the fact there was no one climbing back then, but um, much in the south. But that was part of the attraction. Really, is you know, it's a real subculture and an underground movement, if you like. I really love that. I love to hear about what Crocker was doing and Crispin and Ken what and Ken Palmer and Nick White. They were all doing the same thing. Everyone was just you know, these these individual characters, Mark Edwards, it was all really exciting time. Um and everything was on the table to do it. So yeah, you had to have the time to do it. So I was very fortunate. But as you say, to be able to do that in between training and I was I was kind of climbing, training, drilling, cleaning. It was five, six days a week, and that was every week, every every month for probably ten years. Actually, I didn't really stop. So, again, this is just what one of these things of uh, the southwest is generally overlooked by the media. You know, we always talk about these famous climbers in North Wales and the peak, but I'm telling you, Martin Crocker is way up there. I mean, he's, he's into, I'm not very much into the creative output of climbing. I love new routing and that whole aspect of um, unearthing a new way up a, up a cliff. You know, it's, it's nothing nothing more satisfying than that. And it's the same with Martin. He's extremely adept at being super creative and that creativity actually of how we approach things really rubbed off on me a lot of how to think a little bit outside the box because again there's no real figures you can look to down south if you look to the northern media it's um it's going it's going off in another tangent you know but super inspiring though to see what ron and jerry and ben and all that were doing and i think for me my my the step beyond martin was that I was blending the idea of athleticism and training into this idea of like a wild creative approach to climbing. And I kind of blended that into a new way forward to race standards, you know, because you have to be trained to be able to like actually take those grades further. And I think Martin was much more into just acting on raw skill which he had in abundance and and maybe some other people but no one at that point so we're talking like about 1984 had actually applied themselves as a into training in the south it was just starting to happen where a few individuals were starting to do that throughout the southwest we're only talking about a few people and they're up against including me a wall of traditional ethics, which were, um, you'd have to be pretty strong-minded to to keep going through that. It's kind of an interesting time because there were just suddenly these people polarizing in their different areas who are starting to push the standards, you know? So it's kind of, it's a cool time. The trip that kind of really turned me on into, I am not going to go down the normal route in life, and had kind of kicked off in about 1983, I think it was. And that act of Ben Moon bolting uh, Statement of Youth in 1984, I remember I went there about 1984 for two weeks. And in two weeks, I'd gone from being a traditional climber down the Ruckle in Swanage doing E3, 4, 
Uh, in two weeks, I came back having on-sighted multiple 7Bs, like axle attack, all these things. I remember I did a, a, probably it was the second ascent of a, a 7B plus 7C of Andy Pollitt's in the roof area. Uh, I remember that route in particular. One of the locals said, fuck me, Pete. Uh, that's pretty tasty, mate. You know, actually, that's pretty, pretty good. Where the hell are you from? But it was just really a turning point. That two weeks was, yeah, I know, I know I'm doing what I want to do. And yeah, I just told my parents when I came back, I just want to be a climber and I'm going to do all I want to do with supporting myself. And it ended up pretty much I was full time for nearly 10 years, much like a lot of people up north just pursued climbing to its end and um, just on the dole, went on the enterprise allowance scheme. Might sound horrendously selfish to many people to but to most people who were into climbing in those days it was just that there was no other way of like the sort of monk life way of living to get things done in some ways pete had a really traditional apprenticeship starting out with trad climbing and honing his craft on the cliffs at down at swanage but as he progressed he started to see the potential what a few bolts here and there might be able to achieve and the kind of routes they could open up. I remember putting a bolt in a thing called Birth Pains and New Nations, which was the first radical move to open up super steep blank walls, which couldn't be really protected properly in any other way. And surprisingly, it didn't actually cause too many ripples, which was the interesting thing. I thought it would cause a lot more... Um, airtime in the mags but we were so far south and so cut off from everything down south you could kind of vent your own it's a very creative time that um really creative and i think that's that's possibly why i was really interested in the whole thing anyway it's just you could kind of do what you wanted and um being influenced by what's happening elsewhere elsewhere around the country you could kind of take those ideas and put them in, into portland so portland yeah 1989 onwards, it, it exploded rapidly with whole sectors having like minimal drill pegs, but it was really serious. A lot of routes, you, you'd go a long way. None of it had been explored at all. It was just brambles and mudslides, and it was really difficult to get along. And it was 1988 when I went down there, having been exposed to all these different styles, and, and basically I was just searching for more places where one could open up hard climbing which is at the essence I guess is what I really love doing is trying to push myself uh, on new routes that could be as difficult as possible but going down Portland uh, I'd always assumed really that the west coast was just too chossy but then I heard that Crispin and get this right it, it soloed two routes and I thought ah oh, interesting now what is that about actually this anecdote isn't quite true while Pete was proofing the new Dorset guide, he realised that Crispin never soloed these routes. So while the inspiration might have been there, the actual reality wasn't. as hell. Beautiful flowstone sheet. And I remember going to look at it. Wow, that, that's actually really good, quite good rock, actually. And started testing the flakiness of the calcite and that. And it's like, it's actually well stuck on, you know, it's pretty solid. It's actually looking really like going to a bit of Spain where I've just been on holiday, you know, and... Um, but the first bit I went to look at was Coast Guard North. I remember the first time I dropped over there, I don't think anybody had dropped over the edge there as a climber in years, other than fishermen. There was a fisherman's knotted rope down there. And I remember going on the bottom of that wall and the first wall you get to, and it's like, wow, this really looks like what I'd, what I'd been on holiday when, in 1984 when I'd gone to Lower Pentru. And, you know, it's, it's really similar looking. Yeah, it was very much like it was just solving a problem of how do you how do you climb this hugely overhanging wall where there's no gear at one point. So this happened throughout a lot of the southwest. It was uh, minimal bolting, and also we're talking hand drilling with star drills. So you're kind of self-limited, and it's the same the world over. And it's the same in Australia. Half the reason why Grampians is so badly bolted is because they just they were just drilling by hand and stuff. You know, it's like you might. People visit the Grampians and the places in Oz and it's all just like, oh, big runouts. But it's very similar in, in Dorset and Avon and Cheddar and stuff. 
Crocker was doing the same, putting the old bolt in, you know, like Edgemaster, Avon. It was really exciting climbing. It's an interesting way of doing it, but it's very subjective to you inspecting it and creating this situation that you'd leave for other people. And that's something that gnawed at me personally. The subjectivity of minimal bolting um, and this God-given right, of course, that we give to the first ascensionist to uh, create the aura of a climb and uh, that's something that you yeah, maybe yeah later on we you know you'll, you'll you'll understand why I moved away from that but that was um, that was the state of play at the time so yeah people like Nick White and that myself just putting in very small amounts of bolts because they're hard to do anyway we had no money we skinned on the doll and yeah that was kind of the way it started but it's also the, the fear of backlash that we are now treading into dangerous waters to to suggest that we could even climb these walls and I, and I got it full frontal from many people for putting in I remember the birth pains one it was actually tessellation is the route next to it was the first bolt so it was e56b uh, it made a headline in high magazine and I think Jeff Bertels decided to bury me on that day um, yeah but in many, I just took it on the chin and kept going because what's he going to do? Drive down and sort it out? <laughs> Don't think so. <laughs> Funny story. I remember. Um, yeah, I, I, maybe I should relay that. There's for me personally, there's starting to be a welling feeling that um, this isn't. No one, no one gives a monkeys about mineral bolted routes, and it's generally. As things were progressing in the north, you could see that if you're going to put bolts in, you need to do it properly. It needs to be either you do it or you don't. That, that really started to cement in me. But um, one story I'll relate. Uh, yeah, I remember, I think it was Realm of Chaos, absolute classic down the wall's end. It hadn't been repeated. I don't know how many people had done it at that point. But in the first four or five years, no one had done it. Um, I think it had like three drill pegs in it. But the fact was that these drill pegs, that if you dogged on it, <clears throat> the rock was a bit soft and uh, these pegs, stainless steel pegs, would actually work, work loose. And I remember, uh, I was out climbing, but um, my parents had got a phone call. I don't know how they got their number, but I got back and I heard that someone from Bristol, was Matt, a guy called Matt Ward, had taken a real whipper on Realm of Chaos and almost decked out. I know one or two of the pegs came out and you almost hit the ground from like, you know, a long way up the wall. <laughs> I found that immensely amusing at the time. But um, yeah, it kind of changed perspective that this wasn't going to work out long term. Yeah, that was kind of an interesting point. And I remember talking to mine about it a bit. But yeah, something else had to be sorted in my mind to... I was still on the dole, by the way, at this point. So I'm just... On, you know, I had a little business building climbing walls, a bit like people from the North Enterprise Allowance. What can we do? I built the old bouldering wall, started making holds and things. So I wasn't, you know, I was still, I was kind of supporting, but I was kind of mainly on the dock. Anyway, I had no money. I was just surviving on nothing. I survived on nothing for maybe over 10 years, 15 years, maybe. Just literally nothing. So the biggest quandary at that point was if we're going to, or if me, it was no one else really doing it other than me and Martin. This is, I'm still saying it was only me and Martin doing this at this point to do with Portland and bolting and stuff. Um, what sort of solution would enable like proper sport clients of the style of statement of youth that we'd already seen in 1984 and were happening in um, Malham and so on, you know, it was in my mind that this really needs to be the next step. And I remember putting up um, the first proper sport climb would have been something like Cocteau Phenomena, which is a 7B at Black North South, which was all hand drilled. I think it had six, six hangers put in it or six drill pegs, one of the two. And that was the first one that you would actually say was a clip up from ground to top, you know. But it was still like, I can't afford to do this. 
yeah, at this point, I think it was about 1990, I had a real sort of epiphany about uh, where bolting was going to go in my own mind. Um, but this minimal bolting thing is very subjective to who adds down it, because I'm telling you that no one repeated anything on Portland's of note in the years when they were left as left as like you know minimal bolted three bolt wonders or something or two bolts with big run outs and the odd bit of crap gear and because when when you did put wires in portland it's cheesy rock and it probably wouldn't hold too well um and like i said they totally ignored um no one cared at all so there's no there's no kind of future for it as far as I could see. No one was going to ever come and repeat these rigs. That was another factor. It would have been nice to see people on these things. So it's all kind of building towards uh, what could be done to change that and move towards a more sporting outlet for it. Because Portland was pretty obviously going to end up being um, quite a significant sports zone in my mind. Uh, No one else is really talked about it at that point but I, I basically forced that to happen I mean that's, that's probably the next big thing that happened was making Portland happen so there were all these routes and there must have been like about 150 routes or something at that point that myself and also Martin had done that were minimal bolted things and I was just trying to think how can how can I come up with a solution to mass bolting or even just putting up a sport route right that didn't break the bank basically because I was living on about 40 quid a week and every penny I ever earned went into climbing I remember I approached DMM and they were, I think they just started making um, P-bolts for like stainless steel rolled P-bolts for like lower Pentruin. Um, but they were really expensive and no one wanted to help. No one wanted to actually sponsor anything because I said, I need, you know, 500 bolts. And they were just like, go away. <laughs> you know? uh, so then I started experimenting with the ideas of um, what could you do? So when I first started tinkering in my dad's garage with bending bits of 316 steel, these, these hadn't been seen anywhere in the UK at this point. Uh, people were still putting in hangers like mammoth hangers and stuff like that. They're all pretty crappy, really. So, yeah, it, could be, it progressed on really quickly to testing these things out down the quarries. And if people want to go and see the very first U-bolt put in the UK, head, head on down to Winspit because um, I, I basically set up the first U-bolt as a horizontally devised system where it went in horizontally, not vertically, with the eye bent downwards so that the quick draw would hang in the eye, which I still think is actually a pretty good idea even now. It would still work really well. Um, But I tested that. I remember I put the first one in. Um, It's actually there today. You could go down to There's a little cave below a climb called Red Rain, and it's just in the back of the wall there. And... There's a bolt there. You'll see it. It's, that's the first U-bolt ever put in the UK. It should have a little plaque, actually. The council should think about that because uh, it's, <laughs> it's actually, to me, quite a significant little moment. And then I remember the first route I kind of experimented with actually putting them in a route was as a sport climb called Sugar Ray at Dancing Ledge, which um, I put three of them in, and it worked beautifully. Like, but I put those in vertically because I realised that they could be stronger. It's all a bit hypothetical at this point. Uh, but it didn't take long, though, before the little band of brothers that were, you know, really into the ideas that I'd already started. Uh, we went and tested a bunch down. There was Mike Robertson, myself, Damien Cook. I mean, we went down to Winspit, put a load in, in a big block below Gorilla Action. Uh, you'll still see some there today. They were the original tests of the Mark 1 and the Mark 2 bolts. The Mark 2 one, by the way, is a development on the Mark 1 that has a, a twist in the tail of the bolt, and that put another uh, 10 kilonewtons onto the pullout, quite significant. And that was actually that's Mike Robertson's idea because he was an engineer, you know, he was a mechanic, uh, Formula 1 dude. 
with the teams, very adept at working with steels. I started putting up some some roots with the staples in it. Um, it was quickly apparent that people were starting to realise what had been going on with Martin myself. Like I say, there was a lot of people that I knew who were really into the idea of it, and they were starting to come out. My own friends were coming out, you know, the Cook brothers and Steve Taylor and people like this locally were coming down enjoying flipping some of these bowls. I loved naming the roots and it usually is fed back to the, the tunes I was li listening to at the time. A lot of it came from that, like a lot of it. So it's actually, yeah, to, 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 to do the climbing in Dorset, you're going to be listening, you're going to be actually experiencing a catalogue of what I was listening to back in the day but i think that's quite a common story i was, I was watching a bit the other day of uh, italian climbing history a uh, really good one actually you've probably seen that just come up and the dudes they're interviewing each of the dudes through the ages and um they're all pretty much saying how music really influenced and backed up um the way they felt about climbing and expressed the same mood they were expressing on the type of routes they were doing i find that is same sort of thing. I mean, a lot, a lot of the big roof routes, for example, like say, like a trendochrome at, at um, Stair Hole. You know, it's it's a powerful, punchy route. It's got a bombastic feel. You know, you're in this massive overhang, and you know, I used to love Sisters and Mercy. It's got awesome bass riffs, um, really punchy, riffy tunes, and adrenochrome is one of my all-time favorite tunes, and it just. It just mirrored the climb perfectly, you know, to, if you listen to that tune, that is climbing that route. I'm hearing the tune straight away as soon as I'm thinking of the route. And I found that a lot with climbs, you know. Also, I like a lot of, like, you know, I guess what you call it, shoegazing music, it's kind of my kind of thing. Bands like Ride, Real Dreamy, um, I guess melancholic type tunes really. And a lot of the time you're on Portland, you know, the sun going down, it's mystical. It's a mystical place, Dorset, you know, it's uh, full of pagan history and that's that feel of being lost lost on the west coast there. A lot of the climbs felt really, probably don't now because you're probably queuing for half of them, but back in the day there's no one around. and. Yeah, it's got a mystical feel to it, so a lot of the tunes felt often mirror that sort of thing. Which is how you felt on the day. Sometimes you're really energised, and I was into a lot of different music. I mean, I used to listen to whereas other people might have a social life and go out on a Friday evening or a Saturday night. <laughs> I was religiously listening to John Peel. Like Friday night was, uh, you know, 11 till 2 in the morning or something. Just listen to what he's doing. He was basically more of an influence to my climbing than anybody else because <laughs> his music choice was just immaculate. I mean, wide ranging, and um, I, I loved everything he, he played really. It could be anything from, from South African little guitar band to, you know, Polish thrash music to a Japanese speed band or something. It was just awesome music. Yeah, I just, um, I just sort of personally that I, you know, talking to a, a small band of friends that this vision of turning this, this island into something that could be a mecca for sport, it just seemed really obvious to me <laughs> and to my friends. And I was climbing full time, so I was the man in position to do it really, and I was just dead keen to do it. And um, so yeah, it took about I don't know, probably about a year to. Retrobolt, everything, like every sector. And I was probably putting in about, well, I could do three three long routes in the ruckle a day, so that'd be about 35 to 40 bolts. Pete actually means Wall's End here, on the west coast of Portland. So between 40 to 50 bolts a day I could put in, but it was pretty brutal, brutal work. <laughs> and... I think it's actually, I've, I've, sorry, I was just going to say, it's, it's probably like led to where I am now. Like, you know, I've just had a hip operation and uh, I think the, uh, the amount of work I did 
for maybe 10 years or something. It's taken its toll. I think I wrecked about 200 routes. And it all happened so fast that people <laughs> probably didn't realise what had just happened because it was, it was some really interesting and really important meetings happened in Dorset back in the day, which, again, people won't realise. Is the book is is was the key moments <laughs> in in cementing this because if it had gone another way, uh, it wouldn't it wouldn't be like you see it today. But it, it was really funny actually. Um, uh, there were some BMC meetings where obviously the local climbing club traditional were very against it all. Quite a few people, you know, up in arms about it all. But the people who were actually active, like me, my friends people who are seriously into going out climbing, we were just having a great time, you know. Um, I remember there was one key meeting where, well, there was two or three actually, but the first one was really funny because we'd kind of come up with a plan for, well, let's have Battleship Edge. That could be a sport zone. I've named this area. That's called Battleship Backcliff. This area here is going to be called Blackmore Far South. That all kind of laid out as a meeting agenda, and they're all going to be bolted, okay? And hands up, what happened was, um, I remember I got two or three van loads of uh, the keen youths to come out. All their hands went up. Yes. <laughs> and then who's against it? Well, a few beards went up in the corner. Now we're against it. Okay, passed. Cool. Game on then. So um, that's really... Um, one of the key key moments actually with Dorset was that it just got cemented as official zones quite early on. Um, and I'll, I'll take it on the chin that, yeah, definitely I made that happen. I just, I just forced it to happen. And um, uh, it was essentially, it was, it was like voting by van, van load. <laughs> and that basically cemented those areas as, um, yeah, game on. And it, it just, it snowballed from there. I mean, I was training, training like unbelievable amounts. I, 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 basically what you'd call a high maintenance climber. So um, I had to do a lot of training to my mind to to be as fit as I wanted. Um, probably more the modern competition climber mindset, really. So that training days out, which was always, um, I mean, the rationale behind doing so much stuff is. Uh, I always thought that time, I used to have this, just a daily saying of time is running out. And I'd say that to myself every day. So if it was pouring rain or it's snowing or something, um, you'd go out anyway and climb in the rain and just get on with it because that's time is running out. And I, sh I was really into shunting routes, huge amounts of shunting from like day one. And that was really due to there's no one around, no one around midweek to climb with much. It was very difficult to get routes done in the mid 80s, you know. Uh, I'd go soloing down Swanage for like a couple of hours, then go along to like the Boulder Ruckle and stuff and try and set myself a minimum of 50 E points. It was always between 50 E points and 100 E points in a day. Um, to do that on a shunt, uh, it usually averaged out around 60, 70 E points. Sometimes it did go beyond that. I'd say Laughing Arthur is probably one of the dumbest ones in a way because I, I did clean it on, on a single 9mm on occasion and <laughs> shouldn't have done that. But yeah, a lot of it was, you know, going the big roof climbing, which is another passion of mine. Um, probably the most, I don't really remember the sport climbing so much. It's actually the, the big roofs are what I remember as the most enjoyable aspect of things. But yeah, a lot of the cleaning of those things is really dangerous. And, you know, you're hanging the rope soaring away on the edge of something or you're literally cleaning a block, which you're working, working out in your mind, how can I clean around this block? 
fucking peg around the top of it and the bottom bit goes. Is that going to be all right? Am I going to survive that? You're literally making these calculations all day long. And I remember the stress of being down places like Blackers, or, you know, when you're on your own midwinter with a fog coming in and it's freezing and you're making these decisions that, um, you know, will this block take me out or will it not? If I go up above it a bit with a knife blade, will that stay in once I prise it out of the crowbar or something? Then it, you know, you do it and your heart it's in your mouth for a moment. I mean, I remember once, I was always a bit blasé with um, cleaning. I remember it was one one of the day two or three climbing through Laughing Arthur. I was, took, I was trying to take out all the old wooden wedges that had been left behind. I was clipped into one. I was always a bit slack with having um because I was a, I, to, to clean a roof really well is it's kind of interesting. I won't go into detail, but it's it's much more efficient if you don't get too tangled up with too many slings. So I used to keep it real minimal. Yeah, the, the, this wooden wedge came out, and I'd actually taken my Jumar clamp off at that point. I remember swinging out about twenty five foot, just hanging on the rope because I hadn't actually clipped myself to my foot loop, and I was literally just swinging around, <laughs> hanging on the rope. Just with my foot lit, which fortunately was kind of on properly. Uh, otherwise, I would have you know, gone to the bottom. But there was like loads of moments like that where you just think, "Wow, I kind of got away with that or something." Now, I had lots of near, lots of near misses with cleaning routes, that's for sure. <laughs> yes, yeah, so some things did come to the head at, uh, somehow, but it's all pretty minor. Back at Blacker's Hole. I, mean, I, I must have cleaned the first pitch one autumn. I think the bird bands were in place or something and I couldn't go back. But anyway, it was the next winter by the time I got to go down there. But I'd left a rope hanging from the belay down into the cave and I tied it off at the bottom. But by the time I got back there the next season, um, someone had obviously taken offence to the fact, and I can't blame them really, <laughs> that I'd left this uh, nine mil nine mil rope hanging there at the right back of the cave and they'd set fire to it it was kind of swinging around i'd been swinging around all summer but i knew the effort to get in there because you'd have to aid in a hundred foot roof to get to that point <laughs> it'd take me a day just to even aid in to get another rope back in there i thought i'll oh, bugger this um i can just reach it with a tip standing on this 25 foot boulder i could just reach the the end of the the nine mil which had been burnt and set alight and I managed to stretch it down a bit and put a clamp on it. And uh, I remember just doing a pull-up on it and putting another one on. Uh, I just hoped for the best. It had been blowing around there all all summer. <laughs> Literally blowing. And I, I just took a gamble that it would be all right. And um, I was heart in mouth the whole way, expecting just to go back into the boulders from 80 foot up and just kept going until I got to the belay. And, yeah, it had gone through the sheath on a few places. But it was still in, you know, if you've got four or five strands, you're going to make it. So, um, yeah, I managed to get to the B-lane and survive that one. But, yeah, it's kind of a typical situation down there, <laughs> trying, to, trying to make your way through with not much kit. Yeah, I don't think anybody else um, even thought about doing that. But, um, yeah, one thing that I guess is pretty apparent to you, is you know, I'm pretty driven to just do things and um, again that's really rare I don't think you see you meet you don't meet many people who want to do it to that level you know yeah I think it, it probably meant more to me as well because uh, this might sound a bit strange um, but because I was kind of really isolated in a way and experiencing climbing in a very in like a vacuum, really. In the early days, there were very few people. A lot of the time, as I was spent on my own, either cleaning or training, you know. And then you try and arrange partners to finish these things off. That was hard, the crux of everything. Because uh, you're spending so much time alone. And I actually found music to be, this is an odd thing to say, but almost like uh, like, a, a, like the, the friends you never really had. It was like the bands. <laughs> Something like a shrink would find that quite funny. Um, uh, but yeah, I kind of, I still do. I still, I still find a lot of solace and uh, just uh, joy. Actually, as soon as I put a band on that I like, it just 
I feel really whole again. Um, but as other people might get that from going, going out clubbing or go for a coffee with a bunch of mates or something. But I, I get that from you know, music. And I really did in those early days because you, you're kind of on your own a lot. But um, yeah, you weren't viewed as some a great asset to society. Um, <laughs> so you had to live in this bubble and the bands were like um, a mirror to that because they were also living in their own little bubble. You know, like the first band I ever loved was The Jam. And um, you can get more, you know, private society, you know, this is a modern world. <laughs> it's just like the best sound in the world and that was that appealed to me instantly and it gave you the energy to keep going with things. But I would never want to listen to music at the Glyph because, you know, to actually listen to the wind and the, the sea sucking is is the best music in the world, really. You know, you don't need anything else. <laughs> And to not hear that, actually, it would be a major disappointment. I mean, I love nature, and to just, just feel nature around you is, is the best thing in the world. And you don't feel that unless you're kind of isolated in a situation. Pete was by no means the only person establishing these roots, but he does seem to be the one who put the most effort into making them into lasting legacy. And that's the part that's really interesting to me. There's a kind of glory of being a first ascensionist and opening up adventures that some of your friends can go on or maybe people further afield. But it's quite a different legacy to create a resource that can be utilised by the whole community. And you can have a balance of the two. Big thanks to Pete for giving up a surprising amount of time for this episode. He'd also like to thank Jan Rostron, his parents and the Portland Pipers for their support over the years. In 2021, he is launching a new brand, Infinite Gravity, named after one of his most famous routes. You've been listening to Factor 2 from UK Climbing. I'm Will Treasure. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget you can follow me on social media. You can also sign up for the newsletter where I publish monthly articles and roundups, and there are a few extra tidbits on the site if you hunt around a little bit. It's factor2.co.uk.